Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 5, Episode 2. We're back and running. Uh, Today is Thursday, October the 22nd, 2020. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Score Publishing based in Nashville, Tennessee. We are thrilled to have a phenomenal panel for this week in voice today. And I'm going to introduce you to each of the three of them. Lisa Michaud, say hello. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Lisa Michaud. I am a senior product manager with Interactions, uh, working with the Intelligent Virtual Assistant platform. Uh, I have a background in natural language processing. I was actually an academic for 20 years. Um, so I have a PhD in NLP. And then about five years ago, transitioned into working with voice technologies in the contact center. Lisa, it's a pleasure to have you join us. Tell us a little bit more about Interactions. Interactions uh, is a conversational AI platform. We focus on uh, providing a virtual assistant platform that operates in the contact center for basically client engagement. So for the most part, we exist as the first voice that answers the phone when people call in to our clients uh, for uh, customer service needs. In some cases, our virtual assistant can completely handle what they need through a uh, conversational self-service. And sometimes we do just very efficient routing uh, to the right agent queue. It's a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Next up is Caitlin Gudek. Say hello. Hi, thank you, Bradley. I'm excited to be here as well. Um, my name is Caitlin Goodekunst, and I'm the Senior Director of Marketing and Business Development at Creativity Inc., which is a design and development studio that creates children's toys and voice experiences and other software interactions um, for many of the global toy companies and entertainment companies. Caitlin, thank you for being here. Yeah, so y'all have got a very specific niche and um, you've, you've had a lot of success. Um, t- tell us more about creativity. Dive in a little bit more. Yeah, sure. We've been around since 1998, so 21 years, um, based in San Carlos in the Bay Area. And uh, in the lifetime of the company, we've launched over 7,000 products. So long history of bringing the Furbies and the Zoomers and the Hatchmals and the Fingerlings to life. Um, You know, in 2011, we got involved in apps and started creating mobile apps and app-connected toys. Um, And since we drive a lot of innovation for partners like Mattel and Hasbro and Spin Master, um, voice sort of came to us in 2017, and it's been a major part of our business since then. We first built some Google interactions um, for the assistant platform, and uh, those are still in play today. Strangest Day Ever and Jungle Adventure, really fun interactive stories. And um, we started building for Amazon Alexa in 2018 with the Disney Hits Challenge, which is a really fun trivia game based on their classic library of songs. And uh, most recently, what I'm really excited about is we've sort of married the physical product development that we've been doing for 20 years with this software forward interactions. And uh, we just launched our first Alexa gadgets uh, with our partners, KidCraft and Jazzwares. So those are the first voice controlled toys that are hitting the market just, just right now. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Our third guest is Kat Zidane. Kat, say hello. Hello. 
Hi, my name is Kat Sedan, and I am a conversation designer with Google. Um, I came to conversation design by way of theater. So my, um, I have a BFA and an MFA in theater and spent over a decade as a professional actor, um, play developer, director, teacher, and then um, made a move uh, via another friend in conversation design. Uh, and it's this lovely niche of tech where there are a lot of people with arts and humanities and especially theater and film backgrounds. Um, I started doing conversation design with Pullstring and then with Xandra that were both kind of um, professional services, creative design studios, and now am in my third week at Google. <clears throat> Excellent. Yeah, thank you for being here. It, all y'all can see me, right? I'm, I know it's coming in and out, but you can see me, right? Correct. Okay. Kat, I forgot about, and I had seen it before, the board that you have behind you. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah. There's no way you can't be a badass without that board. Or, <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. What are we looking at? So, um on my wall, I have um, taped up a big roll of butcher paper upon which I have put many post-its. And this is actually not even, this is like a conservative amount of post-its. It's not even an absurd amount of post-its. Um, I'm very visual. And um, when I'm in different phases of design, uh, I always need a place to be able to visualize what I'm working on and keep my thoughts organized. And so if I have a thought, if I have an idea, if there's a piece that needs to be incorporated, it gets put on a post-it and it gets put on the wall um, because I just can't, I can't keep it all straight without, um, without it. Right now, this board is a couple of ideas for like passion projects. One's for a book and one's for a voice experience. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Thank you for being here. Um, so I am going to make a decision here. I'm going to turn my video off because nobody cares about me being on this show <laughs> and it is hurting the performance of the zoom. So that should help us take it the rest of the way. And we're honored to have all three of you. Thank you very much for being here. And with that, we'll get to the news. And story number one from VoiceBot, <clears throat> Alexa now offers personalized reading recommendations. So this is interesting. Um, we, um, you know, have been thinking ever since season one of the show, there's been numerous episodes discussing the educational equity of Alexa in the fact that Amazon's audience skewing wealthier, skewing uh, more educated uh, may one day um, cause uh, access to Alexa to become an educational equity sort of issue. And it looks like we're barreling down the road of that. There's many other aspects to this story, uh, but that's just sort of the one I zero in on. Lisa, I'm going to start with you. Um, what do you think about this? Uh, does this excite you about Amazon's ecosystem and Alexa? Uh, what jumps out? 
Well, I think for me, one of the things that jumped out was just being amused that it seems like Amazon, you know, Amazon returning to books because after all, that's where they started. Um, but the other thing was, I felt like it was interesting that it was being presented like a new idea when we're talking about something that I mean, one of the earliest works in user um, personalization and user modeling way, way back, I want to say like late 70s, early 80s was a library system that recommended books. And it basically recommended it by getting a little bit of information about the person and then placing them into a stereotype of a reader and then recommending books that uh, people who belong to that stereotype typically checked out. So this is a, it's not a new technology. It's an interesting way to deliver that technology and that is putting it in the home voice assistant and perhaps um, being able to leverage so much more of their ecosystem because you know they're pulling from an enormous amount of data about people's buying habits and their you know and their browsing habits and being able to place people uh, within those profiles in order to make recommendations. So I just found it interesting as like old and new at the same time. Yeah, no, that's in, that is interesting. And uh, you know, Caitlin, I'm going to ask you the same question. Uh, this story has got. A number of angles to it. Uh, what jumps out at you? What does it excite you? Does it not move the needle? Your thoughts? Yeah, I think my very first takeaway when I read it the first time was, yeah, they're going to sell more books. So to me, it just felt like a an e-commerce play. You, you know, the more personalized the selection, the more likely you are to say, oh, I, I need that. I need to buy that. Oh, my friend's been reading that. I want to keep up with them. So um, so I, I mean, I think anytime you are recommending a selection that feels like it's catering to your interest that you're going to encourage more purchases. Um, so that was the first thing, but actually where my mind went as I, I read it and uh, finished through to the end was just, um, how they're, they're, um, using reading and audio and sort of learning in a, in a way to drive new innovation with Alexa. So the article actually ends talking about their new read-along feature, which um, they haven't said much about. That was just announced um, in the beginning of this month or, or the end of last month. And uh, what, what it is essentially is a turn-by-turn -turn reading so that kids can sort of um, practice reading and, and get some efficacy information about their reading through Alexa. And that's what we know about it now. So um, that to me was really interesting and starting to have kids lean on Alexa as the future learning tool. Um, I, I didn't mention this, but in my background and what brought me out to the Bay Area from New York was working. So I have a, a long history working in preschool brands and specifically with a lot of educational content. And so my mind sort of lights up and says, oh, electronic learning aids and platforms. Um, this is really interesting that a, an e-commerce giant and turned technology giant like Amazon wants to um, also have this educational leaning and get in front of kids in that way. Excellent. And Kat, I'm going to ask you the same question. Your thoughts on this piece, a lot of different moving parts. Are you uh, encouraged by this? Uh, does it not matter to you? Uh, what do you think? Well, let me tell you, I had a little journey with this. So I read the article. I thought, hmm, interesting. Let me try it out. Uh, because the first thing I was wondering was what kind of personalization, you know, are they, I'm a Kindle user. So I'm assuming they're going to pull that data for the recommendation, which they did. Um, but very quickly, so I thought, okay, that's interesting. But very quickly, I thought, this is a terrible voice application because a voice interaction is ephemeral. And so um, it's not telling me 
how to spell the title or the name of the author. Um, and it gave me a few recommendations and then I couldn't remember what the first one was. And so I said, what was the first book you recommended? And it just started the recommendation funnel all over again. It doesn't, I mean, this is a perfect example of, um, probably shouldn't have been a voice interaction in the first place, but if it is going to be a voice interaction, please send me a, you know, some sort of document. Um, and I think it's a perfect example of, um, putting the function and the, um, I mean, in my more cynical days, putting the, uh, commercial interests of the company, like selling more books ahead of the user. Because I don't think if you talked to a handful of people and said, what are some problems that voice could really solve for you that anyone would say book recommendations? You know, I just, I just, you know, every time I try to get one, I have my hands full, like where you, there are channels to get book recommendations, like on your Kindle, it'll recommend books. And I am far more likely to purchase it that way. So I think the whole premise is flawed because I don't think um, this particular function, um, yeah, A, it's not new, B, it's not needed. I think what Caitlin was talking about at the end um, with what the article led to is the most interesting thing about the article. So I think they buried the lead on this one. Well, damn. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. No, that's great. I, that's excellent. So um, I, I guess I want to follow up on that and ask, um, you know, it's impossible for any for Amazon to, uh, you know, pretty much do anything without being viewed with skepticism. You know, it's just it's just not possible. But, um, you know, I kind of view this as um, I guess the question I ask uh, is, uh, you know, or, or the question I think about is, are there surely there's more people out there that have access to a 20, 40, whatever the price is that they get it at Echo Dot versus a computer? You know, and then beyond that, there's people that don't have access to internet or stable internet, uh, which today includes me. So, you know, there's, um, I want to I touch on the equity issue of this before we jump off of this thing. Um, sure. Because I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And uh, I guess I'll start, I'll, I'll ask you the question, Kat, and then I'll work in reverse uh, back to the panel. Um, do you view access to Amazon Alexa as an educational equity issue? In other words, do you think children that don't have access to Alexa are in any way disadvantaged relative to children that uh, don't? Um, and uh, give me your thoughts on that. I, I want to get, get the, the, the entire panel's thoughts on that, but I'll start with you. Sure. And I will say, even for someone in tech, I come with a healthy skepticism of tech. Um, also, for someone in tech, I'm not necessarily a futurist either. So um, that's where a lot of my spice stems from. Um, but I think that's an interesting question. I don't see at this point, I mean, I think there are absolutely educational disadvantages 100%. I don't think that having access to an Alexa is a um, statistically large enough um, contributor to that disadvantage. I don't see Alexa as having 
um, enough of a contribution to education to being uh, a really big part of this question. And I think that like when you first said an Alexa, you know, a little um, Alexa Echo is a, a relatively inexpensive product um, compared to say a computer. But I don't think that giving someone an Alexa that doesn't have a computer is a functional equivalent or will catch someone up at all in the same way. Uh, so I think there, I, th I think, and I, th I also think the conversation then needs to be different if what Amazon is actually trying to do is level the playing field for education, that this kind of a skill on an Alexa device is not the answer and that the resources could be um, diverted in another way. That comes back to, I don't think that is what a Amazon's goals are with this project. Um, I think if those were Amazon's goals, they would have taken on a different project. Excellent. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Caitlin, I'm going to ask you the same question. Is uh, access to Alexa and Alexa devices um, currently an issue of educational equity? And is it is it moving in that direction in your mind? Yeah, my, my short answer is not yet. Um, I don't know the roadmap and where it's it's trying to go. Um, I think that there is a focus as we're seeing with this new feature on trying to be more present in kids' bedrooms and, and their playrooms. You see that from the new Echo, um, the Panda and the Tiger and the, and the branding being more focused and uh, an enhanced um, attention to making sure that the content is safe and approved by parents. Um, so I think they're, they're continuing down that road to, to fuel adoption. Um, I mean, my first inclination as a, a technologist is that, that, of course, they're doing that. It's like every streaming platform would do. You want to get kids into the ecosystem for two reasons. One, because they're future consumers themselves, but two, because parents are more likely to invest in platforms and ecosystems if their kids are in there. It's like, a lot harder to cancel Netflix if your kid really loves um, one of the shows that's streaming there, even if you think it's superfluous for your budget. Um, so we don't know where it's going, um, but when you talk about Echoes as being a critical part of a kid's experience, I just don't see that either. I don't see voice platforms as doing that. I think tablets or, or mobile platforms certainly are, um, but a few stats that sort of can inform this. Um, the global average of what parents spend on toys in the U.S. is, or sorry, the U.S. average of um, what a parent will spend on each child is $300 per year. Um, globally, that's $56. So if you're thinking about how they're going to amortize sort of that spend, it's probably a big Q4 gift, like a holiday gift, um, maybe a birthday gift, maybe a few impulse items here and there. Um, does an Echo really need to fit in that when you're looking at um, sort of the spectrum? Probably not. They're probably going to lean on like a Kindle or something, uh, an Amazon Fire tablet to make sure that they have access to educational games and can really experience the full spectrum of like digital and participate so that they're not left behind from that space. Um, there has been great educational content um, for Amazon Alexa, but a lot of that is entertainment based and more socio-emotional. Um, so yes, are they experiencing great creativity and in entertainment and sharing that with the whole family, which is really important during COVID because, you know, these, these uh, smart speakers are often placed in a, a great room or a family room. And so parents are sort of listening in, but 
are they critical for education and, and the thing that you need to buy? Probably not. I, I mean, for me, the echo is like, oh no, what do I get that uncle or grandma? <laughs> not grandma, that's a bad one. But what do I get that that relative that I didn't know what to get? There is a $40 echo. They need that. <laughs> what do you buy that person you spend 364 days not thinking about? Oh, that. Okay. <laughs> that- it's prime day. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's no, that's great. Uh, I, I appreciate that, Lisa. I want to ask you the same question. Um, it, do you view this the same way as uh, Kat and Caitlin do? Um, do you view it differently, uh, Alexa? And educational equity. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm I'm very much in alignment with them about the fact that I don't see it as an educational and that much of an educational medium. It's mostly um, more entertainment based. Although I'm I'm speaking personally from you know, my own perspective as a parent with a smart speaker at home and my parent, my kids are a little bit older, but I would say that the things, the, the situation that would cause much more of an issue around equity would be far more fundamental, like having internet access at home in the first place and having something that is actually um, something they could actually do homework on. I mean, this is the, the voice you just said, uh, Kat, earlier about voice being an ephemeral medium. And even as a research tool, you know, you can't do research for homework assignment by ask, asking Alexa because you will have forgotten what she's saying before you're, you know, before she's done. Um, you know, my kids from first grade were doing homework assignments that involved uh, writing assignments using Google Docs for, you know, Google Docs for Education. If we did not have a machine at home for them to do that on, if we did not have home assign, uh, home internet access, that would have been something that would significantly have impacted their ability to achieve equity, you know, from the educational perspective. Um, the smart speaker in our house is almost exclusively used for things like asking what the weather is. <laughs> Maybe answering, you know, resolving an argument at the dinner table to do a quick Google search, but really not, you know, not from the, from the perspective of, of deep, a deep research about anything. I think Bradley wrote a book about that. <laughs> yeah, somebody did. we don't need to dive into that. Um, the, uh, uh, so this week I saw um, our eight-year-old son go up to the Echo Show in the kitchen and, um, you know, the, the Echo Show's got these slides on it that say, here's a news story. And if you want to learn more about the news story, say this line down here. And it was about earthquakes. And he's super into weather. And he goes up to the thing and he says, it says at the bottom of the thing, Alexa, tell me about the earthquake story. And he sat there and said, Alexa, tell me about the earthquake story. And then started telling him about the earthquake story. Now, I have never done that with that device. Uh, my wife, I, I know, has never done that with that device. I don't think anybody he's ever seen has done that with that device, and yet he did it. And I just that really just sent me down a rabbit hole of thought about that. And uh, it's interesting to get y'all's thoughts on it. You know, I, I, I um, you know, uh, one of the things that I dealt with is I, you know, I, I had to go to speech therapy growing up and you know it, I, it's very interesting to see that children who have access to uh, smart speakers and voice assistants um, get over that uh, much quicker uh, that speech pathologists have discovered and that's on my brain but uh, but I do share a cynical view of Amazon don't get me wrong because uh, we just got done doing digital book world about a month ago 
And uh, for the first time, Amazon's market share on book retail is getting eaten into ever so slightly uh, by a New York-based uh, bookshop. And, um, you know, I, w- with this, I see um, Death Star-like tendencies to, you know, move book personalization, you know, book discovery, all those things necessary for a retailer to come and challenge Amazon getting pushed into Amazon's ecosystem. So, no, I, I, I agree with a lot of what y'all said. I think it's a uh, great commentary and, uh, and I appreciate that. Any closing thoughts on that before we move on? Okay, then we'll move, we'll move right along. Story number two, Android police, a secret unreleased option lets users invoke assistant on smart displays without saying, hey, Google. So uh, by virtue of Kat working at Google, she's recused herself on this. Caitlin, I'm going to start with you and then Lisa, go to you. Um, Your thoughts on this. I think this is super interesting. Um, What jumped out at you? Yeah, so I actually get really excited about gesture control. Um, I sat in on a, a CTA panel just talking about what the future of the language might look like and how we even design it and how we approach it. And it's stuck with me for over two years. I just am really excited about how you could standardize that across technologies and how sort of nascent it is in some ways. You know, um, how do you make sure that it's that everybody's doing the same thing and that it's intuitive to approach any device? Um, so the first thing that jumped out at me was, oh, gesture control. Yeah, we really need that. Like a lot of times I am using my smart speakers because I don't want to pick up my phone or it's in a back pocket or my hands are dirty. Um, so that was the first positive thing. And I think the second thing, I'm, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not like a huge uh, worry wart about privacy. I have like every smart speaker in one spot in my office. <laughs> Besides that, I, I work right next to the street and there's people walking up and down listening to every conversation I have. So I think that I'm not a, that important and I don't get too worried about it. Granted, I don't have children, so not coming at this as a parent and thinking about um, like how this is going to affect the, the minorities and people who can't take care of um, their own profile long into the future. But um, the fact that, you know, it is listening for you when you look at it and that um, you can sort of like use gestures to wake it up rather than talking, I could see there being good use cases for that. Like, you know, you want to check the time um, when your partner is on a a phone call or something, they're doing a podcast and you don't want to sort of interrupt it. Like, sure. Um, Is it really necessary? Does that trump all the privacy concerns that I hear um, from consumers, especially parents? Probably not. So I would be surprised if this um, hits the roadmap this year, for sure, when everybody's at home spending a lot of time with um, their smart devices. But long into the future, when there's a a really intuitive way and and it feels more safe to to wake these up with other means besides a wake word, sure, um, I think that's great. I just, um, you know, I, I saw this when I was working at Leapfrog with the privacy controls that we had on our devices, which were all a closed ecosystem. I just wonder, like everybody says they're worried, but only like a small percentage of parents actually use the parental controls. And like, do customers really understand um, how pri- their privacy and their data is being used for these smart devices? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm educated and sometimes I still have to go back and look things up. So I don't know. 
Yeah, no, no, that's well, that's well taken. And Lisa, I want to ask you the same question. So um, interesting um, thing going on in this piece. Um, a lot of potential ways to, to pick that prism up and spin it. What, what are your thoughts when you, when you looked at that? Uh, yeah, so well, my, my first response was, heck no. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a, I'm a real fanatic about privacy, but I'm also very cognizant of privacy. And I made a very conscious choice that our device is in one place. There's no device in anyone's bedrooms. And I do have it locked down in terms of, of wake words. And I'd really rather, I, as much as it frustrates me sometimes that I often have some issues getting the wake word to work. Um, my voice, for some reason, isn't as well recognized as other people in the house. So I'll be standing right next to it and say, hey, Google, hey, Google, you know, a few times. But um, at the same time, I do really want to be in a situation where the only time my, you know, my speech is being sent out away from, you know, and is not being handled locally on the device is after I have explicitly invoked it. Uh, would I uh, care about it knowing where I am in the room? Yeah. I mean, some of the things in that article talked about making the display larger if you're farther away. Um, I thought, well, that would be cool. I mean, I, right now, I don't try to read the display from a long ways away because I have really bad vision. But if it could say, hey, she's across the room, I'll make that really big. That's cool. Uh, I would love the volume to change depending on where I am. If I'm right next to it, it can turn it down a bit. If I'm across the room, it could actually bring it up because there are times when I can't hear it, when I've, when I've actually have successfully invoked it and I asked a query and then I don't hear the response at all because it's just not loud enough. Um, so I think that having some, some sensitivity to my to the location of somebody in the room is a great thing. I do not like the idea of making the invocation be something that's less you know less explicit. I really want to give my explicit permission at this point is when you can start sending my data out away from here. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, that's that's great perspective from from both y'all. I appreciate you sharing it and um, complete agreement that this in the house. Uh, I would just say I don't know if we're ready for that. Um, especially, you know, I uh, I don't think my wife would go for that uh, being in something in here. You know that it's you know there it it's uh, there's trepidation. Um, but what came to mind when, when I was reading that is, you know, right when I started score publishing back in 2014, we actually did some content creation work for some museums and, uh, we did some work, uh, it, it, some of it involved beacons, you know, beacon technology, which is super interesting, um, and some proximity related stuff. And when I read this, I thought of that. And I thought about, you know, hey, this would actually be pretty cool in a museum, um, you know, where you can walk up to uh, an exhibit and uh, you don't have to say anything um, because maybe there's reasons you don't want the person to speak. Uh, maybe they can't speak. Uh, it just detects that you walked up and uh, starts giving you some information about the exhibit or hey, you're in the wrong place, turn back around, walk down the hall or, or whatever it is that it's telling you. Um, so uh, that's that's what came to mind. I thought that that was, you know, I, I can see some promise there, but I, sh I share the trepidation on the on the home front with it. Any closing thoughts on that? 
Yeah, the other use case that comes up to me is like browsing at retail or, of course, during COVID, not wanting to touch things. So um, I have this another memory that sticks out to me is I was um, doing some store checks in a toy aisle and there were all these baby alives and they were all motion sensing. And as I walked down the aisle, they all lit off and started, started giggling and it was surprising and scary, but um, it'd be great if, you know, I was at a, a grocery store and, and it sensed me walking by and um, told me like the shelf started talking. I mean, I like retail and I like go there for fun to, to see how people are marketing. So I'm, I'm weird, <laughs> but maybe other people will be like, please don't interrupt me in that way. But I, I can see this having a lot of applications if it were in a public space for sure. I hadn't even thought about retail. Yeah. Re retail would make a lot of sense, you know, like uh, shopping for something for my wife and walk in there and, it just intelligently knows if I'm standing in front of this for some amount of time, I don't have a clue about anything. So it needs to start telling me some information. That'd be, that'd be nice. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, I guess we'll leave the book book on that with uh, there's, there's use cases where that may not um, offend people. <laughs> we, we will move on to story number three. And I want to get the name of this right. This is from MIT Technology Review. The true dangers of AI are closer than we think. And this is um, this is pretty heavy. It's a really interesting article. We're going to link to it uh, on the page um, for the show. Um, Kat, I'm going to start with you, and then Lisa, go to you, and then Caitlin for this. Um, there's, uh, a lot to this, um, a lot going on here. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. Um, I actually take exception with the premise of the article and kind of where it comes from in, in two ways. Um, there's, there's a problem that we all have when we speak about AI, and that is that the primary metaphor we have to understand what AI is, is the human mind. And I think that is a flawed premise. The mental model of AI being like a human mind or human, a human mind being like AI is fundamentally flawed. Um, the way I think about it is a human mind can, uh, does have a Turing machine. In other words, we can do math um, like a, an AI, but the human mind has so much more than that. Uh, the human mind is um, like, if you just think about it, from narrow to broad scale, the human mind is connected to emotions, is corporeal, is housed in a body, um, exists in relationships, in family, in community, in society. All of these things input the way that the human mind works, which is so much more than a Turing machine. Um, and so that's my first exception is we just it's a very human mistake to make is we think about AI as being something other than it is. So, um, and the other large exception I take is the article is, you know, it kind of starts with the thought, is AI going to take over the world, uh, take over society? In order for anything, including AI, to take over society or take over the world, it has to interrupt and disrupt the power structures in place. And what the article points to makes that impossible because the article points to the fact that AI is upholding and reinforcing the status quo with the biases that the human beings, which have programmed it, have put into it. So A, there's no way AI is taking over the world. 
B, as the article suggests, it's fundamentally, it's got some big problems. You know, it's talking about biases to the systems because of the people who build the systems. For example, the fact that facial recognition software could identify white male faces very well, but black female faces very poorly. And that's because of who's designing it, who's testing it. And there are major gatekeeping issues, whether intentional or not, getting people into the rooms who are designing, testing, um, overseeing these systems is a problem. But again, I think that there's a lot of, I just think the way we think of AI is wrong in a lot of ways. I like to just remind myself that AI is a tool and I like to compare it to any other tool to kind of put it in perspective. So think about AI and machine learning like a pair of rollerblades. I, a human being, put on a pair of rollerblades and I can do incredible things that I cannot do without those rollerblades. But when I take those rollerblades off, they're not gonna like go take over the world. Also, they're not doing what I'm doing. So um, again, like I just, I appreciated a lot of the problems that practical problems that the article raised about who's building the systems who is overseeing the systems. Um, but I take exception with the way the author was handling the topic. Uh, and I think that if we want to, like in terms of oversight and really changing these systems to not um, uphold the status quo, we're going to have to change the way fundamentally, like take them away from the rich people and like use the state to distribute them to everyone so that everyone has oversight and access. Um, without that, I don't think we're going to see major change. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's great. Lisa, I want to get your thoughts as well. A lot of moving parts to the piece. what do you think? Well, like Kat, I felt that the, the, um, the clickbait head, uh, headline was uh, very interesting to me. It, it, it brought me back, like I said, I had 20 years as an academic before going into industry. And one of the classes I used to teach on AI was called Evil Robots and Helpful Droids. And one of the things we did was we analyzed and looked at how AI has been portrayed over the decades and this obsession that we have as a culture that, that there's this upcoming AI revolution that's going to take over the world. But I did feel for me that the article shifted really quickly to, oh, the, the, the danger isn't that they're going to, you know, we're going to head for Terminator real soon. It's this, this perpetuation of bias. And this is something that is a really, really large topic of conversation in the AI and NLP communities right now. Because, you know, when, when we first started moving towards machine learning as an approach to AI, the idea was to move away from the problems of rule-based AI. So top-down AI, where they were trying to explicitly take the things that we use to judge and make decisions and make choices and explicitly encode that so that the AI could then make decisions in the same way, we found that that was uh, really flawed because first of all, it was very, very difficult to really get to the, the nuggets of what it was that people were using to make decisions but also that people had all of these biases. And when they presented their own decision-making processes, they pre presented those through the filter of those biases. So the idea of machine learning was let's step away from that. Instead of trying to explicitly teach the AI, this is how you make these choices, we will give the AI enormous amount of data 
from which it will learn how to make these choices without the human beings putting their own bias in there. Not realizing that the data itself was going to teach those biases because of the way we collect the data. For example, as you pointed out, the whole thing about the, the facial recognition, and this has come up more than once uh, in the areas of computer vision, that computer vision is doing very poorly on faces and people who don't look like the researchers because the data that the researchers collected was based on people who looked like them. And it never occurred to them to make that data more diverse because you know, the definition of privilege is you don't realize you have it, right? And so, um, so Isaac in the, in the article, he brings up the fact that you know, one of the things we do need to do is to make certain that we diversify the voices at the table so that we don't have these uh, projects going forward with incredibly non-diverse uh, researchers who aren't going to even realize the biases that they're bringing into the, into the solution. The problem with that is that it's not a diverse field. Technology as a whole is not a diverse field. You know, I have, as a PhD in, in computer science, I think, well, at the time that I got my PhD, it was about 4% of PhDs were going to women. Now, that's it's way, way worse for any individuals of color. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, the number of women in the field has actually gone down. The amount, of, the amount of diversity we have in computer science is actually on the decline. I kind of came into the field where we were getting to about 40% of undergraduate degrees were going to women. Now it's about 11% of undergraduate degrees are going to women. Yeah. And it's, and, and again, I'm talking about gender diversity. And when it comes to uh, other underrepresented groups, it's even worse. So you know, how do we make certain that we, we, we bring people who are cognizant of the need to look out for where those inequalities are showing up and the cognizant of where the biases might be, the people who are sensitive to that, how do we even bring them to the table when they're not in the pipeline? Um, there's been, this conversation is not, a, is not a new one. But there are a lot of groups uh, really paying attention to that right now. Like within my field of specialty in natural language processing, there's a research uh, workshop called Widening NLP. And the whole point of that is to bring NLP research to a place where it, it is policing itself for these kinds of, of, of issues. Because it's happened in language as well, where we have translation software or we have other NLP software that is associating certain um, certain careers, for example, with male pronouns and certain careers with female pronouns, or picking up unintentionally some very inflammatory negative uh, uh, um, epithets to use for people of color. Uh, so, so you know, trying to to bring the research to a place where it is going to make certain that 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 consciousness is there. But then we also, from an educational perspective, have to find a way to make the pipeline more friendly to a diverse audience. And I'm speaking as an ex-computer science educator. We tend to approach computer science as, if you like solving puzzles for the sake of solving puzzles, this is the field for you. But there are other people who could be bringing so much to the field who want to do things to save the world or to make the world better. And we need to do a way better PR job of saying, this is the place where you could use this as a tool to, to enact real change in society. Like that is what, it's not just, oh, I'm gonna geek out over this piece of code. This is a, a avenue through which you can do the following things. And I think 
we in the voice community do a good job of of of, of um, attracting a more diverse audience because we pull from such a much more many more different avenues into the field, right? We have people in theater background. I actually started out as an English literature major myself. So, you know, it's, um, we, we, we recognize how many different uh, backgrounds contribute to this particular kind of technology. We need to have that spread out and basically say like, everybody needs to have a voice in this. Mm. No pun intended. Yeah, that's, uh... Wow. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Uh, thank you for that, Lisa. Um, Caitlin, I'm going to ask you the same thing. Uh, heard two fantastic streams of thought on this. Uh, I want to get your thoughts as well. Um, what did you think when you looked at the piece? Yeah, um, I, I love what um, both Kat and Lisa contributed to this, two um, different approaches to the same issue, but um, talking about the data and the fact that, you know, this isn't a human um, platform, that humans are still sort of manipulating it and the future of it. Um, looking at the, the article itself and the last question that was posed to the, um, to the main subject was, what do you dream about with the future of AI? And it's a very hopeful way to end this article. And... Um, the, the author said that it could be a great equalizer. And so I'm bringing this full circle to your question from the first article, which was um, this idea of equalization. And I think that, you know, if we're really focusing on the data and also how we, what, what story we tell that humans are inherently subjective. How are we, what, how are we analyzing that data? You can use it to tell so many different stories. Are we, be, are we really being as objective as possible um, with what we pull from that? Um, yeah, there's great things that, that AI can drive. And then AI being, you know, conversational tools as well as facial recognition and all the other um, types of manifestations of, um, you know, what machine learning is contributing. Um, is it the great equalizer right now? Probably not. Like, again, access is an issue. Um, it's mean, maybe not as meaningful as it could be uh, for people's lives and a part of their lives um, in a way that would really enhance the standard of living in a way that's, you know, not just a convenience factor. But I always look at voice as, um, as having sort of two main purposes. Um, the first, which a lot of people, my, my clients come to me about is um, as a channel, as a marketing channel. So for that, like, of course you think like commercialization and consumers, and that's like a, a have sort of bucket. Um, but the other one is an interaction modality. And so um, being able to, you know, converse with something, uh, the, the kids and the subjects that we design for are young children. So they may not be able to read. Um, we've also built a, an interaction for uh, Uno Braille, their, their latest um, Uno game that was built for people with visual impairments. And so it was a tutorial for people who were learning how to play that game and have an, an AI game master for um, Amazon Alexa and for Google. And so, yeah, there's, there's great ways that this um, AI can afford new accessibility for people who might not otherwise be able to interact with technology in the same way. So can it improve those standards of living? Like right now, absolutely, yes. There's a way that it can sort of enhance um, your their lives, you know? Um, there's a couple articles that also, or, or news subjects that have come out recently about AI as being problematic um, in the times of COVID. Uh, the first one was looking at uh, people's applications and how some of them were thrown out because the AI was flawed. Um, and so that prevented students from getting into their universities of choice. 
yeah, that's a, that's a problem. Um, there's a, a ballot, there's a proposition on the ballot here in San Francisco about affirmative action and, you know, um, giving, giving people access. That's a social issue, um, that AI is sort of like being designed to deal with. So yeah, that's, that's going to be there, whether AI is, is part of it or not. Um, they also mentioned employment. I, I know that there are platforms that are already screening people out of things and that those, um, could, possibly dis disparage different minority groups um, who might otherwise be great candidates and who like both sides lose in that in that situation the the applicant as well as the person who might otherwise have a great candidate um, so so there's definitely pros and cons on both sides however you look at it um, I, I think that if we as long as we're sort of protecting this idea of public privacy and not, police using this to police people or to um you know set them as apart like there are great ways that you can leverage ai for the social good and is it the great equalizer uh again maybe not yet but could it be um a tool to help provide access and um you know reduce some inaccessibilities that exist now i i really hope so no, that's excellent. Yeah, no, that's uh, three excellent responses. I, I don't. I'm, I, I want to throw one thing on here, and then we'll move on to our last story, which we're not going to spend long on. We wanted to spend most of the time here, and I appreciate y'all doing that. So we've got a five-part story going on right now for this week in Voice VIP called "50 States of Voice," and it's looking at each state and picking out a, a story of some sort related to voice and AI, uh, and sharing it. And the story for Mississippi is about, um, which was in part three, which was earlier this week, was about a woman named Nashley, Nashley Cephas. And I don't have a clue if I'm pronouncing that right or not, but she works at Amazon and she works for AWS and her entire job. And I'm going to read this because I had to, I wanted to get the words right when I wrote this. Her job is to help mitigate bias within the company's machine learning algorithms, okay? So that's her entire job. That's, that's it. That's her, that's her job. And she's from the South, and she currently lives in Atlanta. But she, uh, if I understood the story correctly, is from Jackson, Mississippi, um, or thereabouts. And she uh, wanted to get a loan to buy 12 acres of land in Mississippi um, for the purpose of turning it into a mixed use development, uh, part of which had an educational slant to it to provide educational community and resources to children, um, you know, plenty of minority children, but not necessarily to the exclusion of anybody um, so that they can go on and have the type of career that she's had. The banks, every bank she talked to rejected her. Um, until finally she got a lawyer involved. There's a whole long story here, and I sort of paraphrased it because I'm dealing with a limited amount of characters when I write these things. But uh, super interesting um, that somebody of that caliber um, with that level of resources um, is shut out uh, from um, institutional backing and support. And I found it fascinating, and that was the story we included for Mississippi. I, you know, I think it's just enough to button up what the, what the three of y'all said. I, I, I'm very hopeful about this space and I'm drawn to it 
in a gravitational sort of way, not just because of the intelligence of the people working in it, which is profound, but the uh, something that unites the people in this space is the, the, the ability to navigate through the ambiguity involved, which, you know, um, you're, you're dealing with these major tech giants and uh, there, there's, uh, sometimes you wish that that weren't the case, but, um, you know, uh, uh, being able to view stories like this for the success that they are, that somebody overcame something, they overcame, this woman overcame all of these obstacles to create, to buy, she bought the 12 acres and this thing is underway. Um, and you can view that as a good news story. You can view it as a bad news story. And the, or you could view it as both. And the people in this space are pretty good about, are really good about navigating and, and pondering the ambiguity of stories like that and figuring out how to make the world better. I'm encouraged by that. So that's all I wanted to say. Any closing thoughts on that? We will move on to our last story. And we're not going to spend long on this. Uh, I, I love including WTF sorts of things. Um, Behold the smart cactus. <laughs> and uh, this is um, uh, either super creepy or innovative. I guess there's some spectrum there. Um, uh, Lisa, I'm going to start with you. Go to Caitlin and Kat. I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, quick response. Don't give me anything longer than a few sentences. Uh, is this super creepy or is this useful in some way that is not obvious? My only notes on this article was why. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of glad that you put it under the WTF uh, category because that makes me feel a little bit uh, better about my own, my own gut reaction. I wouldn't say it's creepy. I just don't really understand the point. Um, it's like those cell phone towers that pretend to look like trees, but they really don't. Um, you know, call a spade a spade. It's a speaker. Why does it need to try to look like a cactus and fail? <laughs> Uh, it's a it's a good question, uh, Caitlin. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm going to throw another three letter W word in there, which was who? <laughs> like, why do we care? <laughs> um, I mean, I I like funny design and quirkiness. I go to museums to be inspired, and did this make me think a little differently? I was like, okay, this looks like a fun pincushion. Um, I like the fact that they're thinking about a different way for how this could look in your home. Um, but yes, like, does it need to look differently? I don't, I don't know. I would not buy this for the design aspect. If it was in a line of Google homes and it was one option, I'm sure people might pick it up and say, yeah, why not get that version? Just like they are excited about the blue iPhone instead of the silver one every year. Excellent. And Kat, your thoughts. Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it fit right into, you know, right now during shelter in place, so many people have been getting more and more plants. The, I thought the only thing missing from the design is that it's not millennial pink. Uh, but in the end, I kind of landed on anything that offers the customer another choice to purchase a product that is the right fit for them is a good thing. So I like that someone has taken into account the design of an object that's going to be in somebody's home. Interesting. Yeah. So th this is excellent. So I'm going to attempt to turn my camera on back for the end of this. 
Thanks to all three of y'all for being part of this week in voice. You're all awesome. Uh, you know, phenomenal points of view and, and just deep experience. And we appreciate you taking the time to share it. Uh, Lisa, Caitlin, Kat, thank you very much for being on this week in voice. It was a thank pleasure. You. Yeah. Thanks thank for you. having me. Nice sharing the stage with these ladies too. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> for this week in voice season five, episode two. Thank you for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, thanks for listening. If you're listening on your podcast provider of choice until next time.